Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This week's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, is about Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, a book that changed the way we think. Why do men persist in treating women like the other? And what can anyone do to stop them? In these talks, I've discussed lots of the different ways in which human societies can be divided between oppressors and the people that they oppress, different hierarchies, structures, forms of group discrimination, slave owners and slaves, white and black, capitalists and workers, the rich and the poor. The many can oppress the few and the few can oppress the many. Unaccountable elites can make the lives of almost everyone else miserable. And yet there is one kind of hierarchy, one structure of power and of discrimination that seems to be more pervasive than any of those, more ubiquitous. It's there in every kind of human society in some form or another, more universal. And that is the way in which men oppress or discriminate against or use their power over women. And the fact that this seems to be more pervasive, more universal, after all, there are some societies that don't have slave owners and slaves in them, its ubiquity raises a puzzle. There's a kind of dilemma here, how to think about the oppression of women by men. Is it like these other kinds of oppression? Can it be compared to forms of racial or religious or other kinds of political discrimination? Can it be compared to structures of economic oppression, of course, it has a lot of that in it. But if you're thinking about how it works, are these all part of the same basic category of the ways in which human beings mistreat each other? Or is it different? Is there something about the male-female, man-woman relationship that separates it out when thinking politically or philosophically from these others? And the dilemma is that if you go down the it's different route, there's something more ubiquitous, more pervasive about it. The risk is that you naturalize it. By saying it's everywhere, there's a danger of saying it's somehow hardwired into us. It's something that we can't avoid. It can breed a kind of fatalism or at least a sense that there's an inevitability to it. If you naturalize a kind of oppression, you can make it harder to believe it's possible to do anything about it. So there are huge risks in naturalizing that relationship certainly in trying to give it a biological basis. But on the other hand, if you say, no, it is like these other kinds of oppression or discrimination, it should be understood in comparable political terms, then you have to answer the question, well, why is it so pervasive? Why is it so hard to get rid of? Even the worst kinds of oppression under the other categories can be abolished. Can this one be abolished? And if it can, why has nowhere done it? And that dilemma, that puzzle, is where Simone de Beauvoir starts her book, The Second Sex. She begins by asking the question, is the oppression of women by men to be compared to other kinds of political or social oppression? And she draws those comparisons. And then she asks how and why it's different. So the comparisons she makes are explicit. She uses the same language. She talks about the enslavement of women by men. Some of it is literal. Women have been slaves, just as men have been slaves. 
but some of it is more metaphorical. This is a kind of oppression in de Beauvoir's mind that is as extreme as slavery. She talks about vassalage, a kind of feudal term, meaning a relationship of obedience, the expectation of favours, a kind of structure of dependency that allows men to control women in return for treats. She also uses the language of caste, C-A-S-T-E, the word that Frederick Douglass used to talk not about the relationships between slave owners and slaves. That's not caste. As Douglass said, that's just crime. But the relationship between white and black Americans in the North, in the free part of the United States, that relationship of discrimination and prejudice, which is not just written in law, it's in people's minds and attitudes. And de Beauvoir says that men are a caste and women are a caste. And one of the noticeable features of caste relationships is that the upper caste, the higher caste, the people who somehow get the benefits are often oblivious to it. Caste relationships, caste politics are less explicit in many ways than other kinds of oppression because to be on the receiving end of that kind of prejudice is to notice it all day, every day. You see it in all sorts of minor interactions. You see it in all sorts of tiny encounters. And yet for the people who are doing it, the people who are dishing out the caste discrimination, they often don't notice it at all. To live as the caste that benefits is often to be oblivious to the caste system from which you benefit. Those arguments have been made, are still being made, about racial relationships all around the world, relationships based on discrimination. And de Beauvoir says they apply just as much to the relationships between men and women. So she makes the comparison... And then she says, it's still different. It's not just, it's not even slavery or vassalage or caste. Male-female relationships have a different character and they can't just be compared to the kinds of discrimination and oppression that have been meted out to people on the basis of race or religion or economic or other considerations. Why is it different? Well, one reason it's different, she says, is that women are not a majority, and they're not a minority. This is not the oppression of a minority group. This is not like the way that European Jews have been treated. This is not like the way that racial minorities have been treated all around the world. But nor is this kind of a narrow elite, men as a kind of unaccountable small group and aristocracy taking it out on the many. There is a kind of demographic equality here. Men and women in those terms are relatively speaking equal. Not always, of course. There are societies in which somehow the numbers get unbalanced. There are contemporary societies. India in the 21st century is one where because of selective infanticide, essentially, a kind of selective abortion that prioritizes boys over girls, there's a big imbalance in the numbers of men and women in Indian society with hugely destructive consequences. But nonetheless, compared to these other kinds of discrimination that can either come from the few over the many or the many over the few, men and women are equally balanced. It's not that, and it's not that women can think of themselves as a kind of political class, de Beauvoir says, in the way that a persecuted minority can, or indeed a persecuted majority can. Neither the workers nor the Jews are like women, and women are like neither. And one piece of evidence she gives for this is that she says it's relatively uncommon for women to talk in political language about we 
about women as a class, as a political actor or agent, as a group of people capable of forging an identity in politics that makes them the agent of change. Other kinds of oppressed groups talk all the time about we, us and them. But in politics, de Beauvoir thinks, women rarely do. And then there's the fact that these other kinds of oppression are ones that seem to allow for more choice. You don't have to necessarily believe that the proletariat as a class is inevitable. You can try and escape from the class as a member of that class, but you can also try to abolish the class. You can try to create a society in which that category does not exist. If you are one of the oppressors, if you are a capitalist, if you own a business, you can give it up. You can lay down your tools of oppression. No one, de Beauvoir says, has to be a colonial administrator. There is choice. Is there choice when it comes to men and women? She thinks not. This argument might look different now, but she thinks not. She says men have no choice but to be men. And she also says women can't really aspire to abolish men as a class. You can abolish slavery. Can you abolish maleness? That argument might also look a bit different with hindsight. This is the late 1940s. The Second Sex was published in 1949. 20 years later, Valerie Salonas in the United States, the woman who shot Andy Warhol, published the Scum Manifesto, the Society for Cutting Up Men, in which she made the feminist argument that the goal should be the elimination of men. But de Beauvoir does not think that that's an option. And because it's not an option, because abolition cannot be the goal of the cause, it is constraining. It is much harder to see how to make progress. It is the kind of injustice it is harder to see how to get rid of. Douglas's approach, escape, expose, abolish, doesn't seem to apply here. But that doesn't mean that de Beauvoir does not believe in progress. So in The Second Sex, she is quite clear that there has been progress comparable to the kind of progress that has been achieved by other groups who suffer at the hands of oppressors, who suffer prejudice, who are not protected by the law, who do not have the same rights. Women in France in 1949 could vote. But, and it still seems fairly amazing to us now, That right had been granted to women just five years earlier in France, in 1944. And there is an aspect of this kind of injustice which seems different because in France at the time of the revolution, more than 150 years earlier, the question of women's suffrage had been raised, a revolution that had been undertaken in the name of achieving rights for all, raised the obvious question as to why women shouldn't share in those rights. And there they were 150 years later, and they still hadn't answered that question in the affirmative. At the time of the French Revolution, the question of divorce was central to some of the political discussions. Divorce as a means of emancipating women from certain kinds of absolutely appalling oppression by men. And 150 years later, the argument was still being had, and the divorce laws in France still hadn't been liberalised, though they were about to be liberalised. It seems to take longer In a sense, the argument is so obvious that it seems baffling that it should take forever to make progress. This isn't just a French perspective, but it probably is a particularly French perspective. The gap between the promise of the French Revolution and the arrival of female emancipation is too long to be a coincidence. 
De Beauvoir also writes about the emancipation of women in the United States, where there maybe had been more progress. There were greater opportunities even in the 1940s. There was still a huge way to go for women to lead independent economic lives, to emancipate themselves from some of the more oppressive aspects of marriage. French society is still primarily a Catholic society. America looked like a country where there were greater possibilities for women to be free agents, to do things in their own right, particularly to forge a career or to find opportunities in the workplace that were denied to women in France. And yet de Beauvoir says it's never as straightforward as that. The emancipation never comes without strings attached. And in America, as women become more emancipated, so they were subject to more and more other kinds of social and moral constraints, suspicion of the woman who earns her own living, suspicion of the woman who wants to break free from marriage, new kinds of ways of judging women, of imposing moral restrictions on them, of asking whether this is really what women are meant to be. And the contrast still exists, de Beauvoir says, with men in America, men who take advantage of their freedoms to do whatever the hell they like, and to do it in a way that assumes that they're not going to be judged, and women who are given freedoms that seem to come with new ways of being judged, men who just look at what they can do and do it, women who are forced always when they make choices to look over their shoulder and ask how they're being judged for it. The problem, de Beauvoir says, and the thing that makes the oppression of women by men potentially at least different is that there are always strings attached. That's what makes it pervasive. That's what makes it ubiquitous. That's what makes it universal. So the question then is, where do these strings come from? Why is there always, with the emancipation of women, to that point at least, the thought that what is given with one hand is taken away with another by the emancipators, who will still have to be men, because men have the power. Why can men never let women be free? The word that de Beauvoir would use, I think, to describe the predicament of women, but also of the relationship between women and men, is that it's a kind of trap. It's more of a trap than other kinds of oppression. Other kinds of oppression may be worse. The worst of slavery, actual slavery, is worse than metaphorical enslavement of women by men. But the pervasiveness is because there is a kind of inescapable trap to the way this has been constructed. It's not biological. It's not predetermined. It's not natural but it has built into it a kind of intellectual structure that can be understood philosophically that shows why it is so hard to escape. And The Second Sex is a very long book, and it's full of so many different ways of thinking about the same puzzle, the puzzle of this trap. And it isn't just philosophy. De Beauvoir draws on history and myth, culture, taboo, psychology, psychoanalysis, all of it. She'll take anything and she'll read anything and she'll write about anything that might help unpack the puzzle. She draws on all of it and she's pretty scathing about a lot of it. It is quite a scathing book. She takes psychoanalysis seriously and at the same time she's completely clear as to how ridiculous psychoanalysis would be, Freudian psychoanalysis, as an explanation for the ways in which men and women are trapped by their relationships with each other. She says of the psychoanalytic explanation that seeks to ground it in genitals, in penis envy, in the absence or presence of a certain kind of sexual organ, 
that this doesn't explain anything. The question when it comes to Freudian penis envy is not what does it explain because it explains nothing. The question is what the hell explains it? Or as she says, if you're that kind of psychoanalyst, what you need is psychoanalysis. You need to be on the couch. If you believe in penis envy, the question is what on earth happened to you to make you believe that? She draws on all of it, but ultimately I think the analysis rests on philosophy. So there is existentialism here, but I'm not going to try and do existentialism in this talk. I think the easiest way, though it doesn't do justice to the full range of the argument, to characterise the way de Beauvoir breaks it down and then builds it up again, is in the language of nature and freedom that can have particular meaning for existential philosophy, but I think also has a more general and accessible meaning. She also uses the language of the subject and the object. Men have traditionally been the subjects, women the objects. And she also uses a word that's become much more widespread in this kind of context. Women have become the other. Men, to use a slightly ugly verb, other women. They define themselves against women, and in doing so, they define women. And because women are the object, women are not only objectified, they lack the power to define themselves. It's denied to them by men. But this has something to do with nature and freedom, because de Beauvoir identifies a kind of predicament for the subject, that is, for the men. Some of this starts with the struggles that men have to know how to relate both to the natural world and to each other. And though this is partly a story about male dominance and power and cruelty, it's also partly a story about male weakness and inadequacy and fear. Men don't know what to do with their predicament, their predicament not as the object but as the subject of existence, as the people who can decide how to live, who can make choices about who they want to be, who can define themselves. The dilemma is this. Do you define yourself in, through, and against nature? That is, as a man, as an individual man, do you try and place yourself somewhere in the natural order of things? And de Beauvoir says, though many philosophers have argued that's the place to start, including Rousseau, who thinks that men, not women, but men should try and locate themselves in nature. De Beauvoir says the trouble with that for most men is that it's terrifying. It makes you feel not inadequate, but somehow insignificant, because nature doesn't care about you. Nature is indifferent to an individual human being. You can commune with nature, you can go out into the countryside and feel the beauty of it, but you are feeling something about nature. Nature doesn't feel anything about you. A mountain doesn't talk back. You can commune with nature, but you can't really communicate with nature. And whether it is a landscape or whether it is the species, whether you're trying to connect yourself to the natural condition of humankind as a species, the species also doesn't care. Individual human beings mean nothing to the species. And we don't just need evolutionary theory and genetics to understand that. We know that nature chews us up and spits us out. To be a man, de Beauvoir thinks, is to be frightened of a direct encounter with nature because nature doesn't care. So the alternative for a man is to try and find meaning, connection among other men, among people like you, the other subjects, the other people who are capable of defining their own lives 
and making their own existential choices. But the trouble for men with finding meaning among other men is not the indifference of other men, but the fact that the other men are just like them. So there are some men who stand out from the crowd. There is occasionally a Napoleon or whoever you want to draw on. The very, very few who somehow seem to transcend their circumstances. But they are very few, and frankly, who wants to be them? For most men, most of the time, to be among men is to notice that they, or maybe I should say we, are all the same. There's a different kind of indifference here. It's not the impersonal indifference of nature, but it's the indifference of interchangeability. It's really hard to stand out. It's really hard to be the one who feels special because you're not special when you are among men. What you discover is that we're kind of all the same. And so men need something else that grounds them, that grounds their existence, that gives their existence meaning, that is neither nature nor their fellow man, or somehow actually both a bit of nature and a bit of their fellow man, but not too much of each. And what men found, what men have found, de Beauvoir thinks, in almost all social, cultural and political settings, is that that role for them needs to be fulfilled, is best fulfilled by women. Men can define themselves against women by treating women as, in part, a form of nature, and in part, an equal, that is, just another person, but not too much of either. So the way it's meant to work is this. Treating women as nature is to allow men to feel their difference. You relate yourself to nature and you feel that as a person making choices, unlike just the natural order of things, you as a man stand out. So a man can compare himself to a woman, a naturalized woman, a woman treated as emblematic of this thing called woman, and often reduced either to body or reproduction or sex. And the man can feel different, freer, as though he has more choices, more choice than the woman, more choice than the mountain, more choice than the species. But at the same time, women are people too. And therefore, it is possible to have a relationship which is a relationship of esteem, a relationship with someone who is both naturalized by men, but also capable of conversation, of love, of relationship, of affirmation. The mountain won't affirm the individual man, but a woman might. And so what men seek from women is this weird mixture of the part natural and the part personal, natural enough to allow the men to feel different, personal enough to allow the men to feel affirmed. That's how it's meant to work. The problem is, it doesn't work. It never works, because it doesn't make sense. The two parts of the equation don't reinforce each other, they pull against each other. And the relations between men and women are wrecked by the fact that women are never quite the thing that men want them to be. They're either too much naturalized, and therefore for the relationship that men want, too impersonal, or it's too personalized, and therefore for the relationship that men want, not natural enough, not distant enough. And she describes it in so many different settings in so many different ways, but there is a doubleness to male-female relationships, which is shaped by this paradox, this pulling in different directions. Men cannot have their cake and eat it. They cannot have women as natural objects and also sufficiently human and personal that they can make men feel they are among people like them. You cannot have it both ways. 
And what men find and what women find is that men are always complaining that the woman who is too much her own person is not enough woman with a capital W. And women who are just woman with a capital W don't give men enough sense that they are special because they have chosen a special woman with a small w. And that night dilemma never goes away. And it eats away at the men and the women and it produces structures of coercion and structures of discrimination and structures of prejudice because men are always seeking the thing that they can't have. And de Beauvoir describes lots of different versions of this doubleness in history, in contemporary French and European society. She draws on letters and diaries and novels and memoirs and she finds in all of them this kind of double theme It's never satisfactory because it can never give the men what they want and because the men don't get what they want. They reinforce the prejudice that they think will provide the answer and all it does is make the problem worse. So the doubleness is there for de Beauvoir in sexual relationships. In the misery, she thinks that most sexual relationships cause most people because they don't give the partners to the relationship what they want, the women, because they are given no power no authority, no ability to decide, and the men because they want something that they can't have, a woman who is both independent and generic. And you can't be independent and generic. In the second sex, she spends quite a lot of time dissecting and basically eviscerating the institution of marriage. She talks about wedding ceremonies and wedding nights in harrowing detail, the horror of them, the horror of the doubleness of a French village wedding, which, as she says, is both a ridiculously ceremonial and sacred occasion, ribbons and bows, the mayor and the priest, the village turning out to cheer and celebrate what is also a profoundly bestial occasion. And that's the word she uses, cruel, often violent. It's the occasion with the ribbons on the church and the blood on the sheets. She talks about the absurd doubleness of men in their attitudes to mothers, the celebration of the mother, the reverence for the mother, turning the mother almost into a kind of religious object. And at the same time, the contempt, the fury that many men have for their mothers, but also, she says, almost always for their mothers-in-law. She identifies the obvious grotesque contrast between the way some men talk about their mothers and then talk about their mothers-in-law, as though these were two completely different categories of person. It doesn't happen so much now, but I'm old enough to remember when comedy, TV comedy, often turned on the mother-in-law joke. Les Dawson, who was quite a funny comedian, nonetheless built a career out of saying things about mothers-in-law that he wouldn't dream of saying about mothers, certainly not his own. But it's no joke for de Beauvoir, it is emblematic of the profound and unsustainable doubleness of what men want from women. She gives images, she gives motifs to capture this. She says of men that it is absurd to think that you can confer personhood on a woman by putting a ring on a finger, a piece of metal on a finger to turn someone from one kind of person into another. If you want to confer personhood onto a woman, you have to do more than put a ring on a finger. If all you want to do is put a ring on a finger, all you will get is an object. You will not get a subject. And yet what men want 
is an object who is also a subject, a woman whom they can control, but not control so much that they don't also feel that that woman has chosen them. And she is withering about the wish for men to have women who have chosen them, but at the same time to deny them the right to choose because of the fear that if you allow a woman to choose a man, that woman might not choose you. It's a trap. It's clearly worse for women than for men. Not because women are more trapped by this relationship, because the relationship itself is the trap. All parties are trapped by it. But because the consequences are worse. The consequences for women, and a lot of the second sex is a kind of horror show describing these consequences. The horrors of a bad marriage. The horrors of the life of a French peasant woman in 20th century France. The horrors historically of what it is to live in a harem, what it is to be subject to a man who is not himself subject to the law, the horror of having to live a life with no ability to own property of your own, the horror of being reduced to motherhood without any choice. It is worse for women than for men, always worse for women than for men, because in this trap, it's a trap that has its origins in the fact that men have the power, because men started out as the ones who claimed the right to define existence. But it's bad for men too. There isn't a huge amount of compassion for men in the second sex, but there is understanding that men do not know how to do this. The wedding night, and there's a lot in the second sex about the horror of the wedding night. It's a horror for many women, but for men as well. And there is almost a hint of compassion when de Beauvoir says that men can't win on their wedding night. Because if they know what to do, if they know how to do sex, it makes it clear that they've done it before and that this woman that they have just declared in church is the only one for them, is not the only one for them. There have been other women. And if they don't know what to do because they are a virgin, because they are inexperienced, they seem clumsy and foolish, even though that's meant to be the point of the exercise. This is the one and there will be no others. And de Beauvoir says, really, as a man, you have to be extraordinarily lucky to find your way between those two terrible fates, either the clumsy fool or the cold libertine. Most men are one or the other. So what's the way out? Well, she has a philosophical answer in a way for what's the way out, but she also has some political answers too. The philosophical answer is women must be subjects. They cannot simply be objects. If women and men were both able to define their existence, the result wouldn't be harmony, it wouldn't be peace, it wouldn't be wonderful wedding nights and wedding ceremonies that made sense. There would, de Beauvoir says, still be vice. She says there would still be orgies. She says there will still be sexual misery. She says there will still be sexual ecstasy. There will be everything that there is now, but it won't be a trap. And part of the reason it won't be a trap is not because if men are subjects and women are subjects, there will be no objectification, there will be no othering. Freedom for women must mean the freedom to treat men as the other, because that's what human beings do. It would be absurd to think that when human beings relate to each other, there isn't some alienation, there isn't some fear, there isn't some attempt to define ourselves in how people react to us. There will always be subjects and objects. There will always be people, even the people to whom we're closest, who seem like the other to us. 
But if both sides of the relationship are able to do this, there is the possibility of reaching a new kind of understanding. And the second sex ends with holding out that possibility that if men and women were free each to determine their own existence, there wouldn't necessarily be harmony, there wouldn't necessarily be a coming together, the differences between men and women might become starker, not less dark, but there would be the possibility of understanding. And in the trap, all there is, to use an existential term, is bad faith. All there is, is a refusal, a failure to face up to the essence of the circumstance. And the essence of the circumstance is that both sides are trapped. There is so much in the second sex, and yet there are some things that aren't there and seem to hover on the edges of the book and that readers often find themselves thinking about. One is de Beauvoir's own life, that philosophical ideal at the end of a kind of mutual relationship between free existential subjects. What many readers, most readers know about de Beauvoir is that the central relationship with a man in her life was with the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And Sartre hovers over this book, not because it is a mouthpiece for his ideas, because it isn't. He could never have written it. He couldn't have come close to writing it. And it has a whole range of influences. It's not just a work of existential philosophy. But because he's there in the descriptions of relationships, it's impossible for readers, women as well as men, not to wonder, how did de Beauvoir's life itself match up to some of these ideals? Because she was notoriously, in France, a woman who tried to live a kind of free life they didn't marry. It was a kind of open relationship. It scandalized many people. Sartre is there in the book because there are passages where you can be fairly sure she's thinking of him. One of the double standards that she writes about is that women, because women are the object and the other, are constrained by an expectation in how they appear. And somehow men have found the freedom, some men anyway, to dress however they like. A man can be scruffy. A man can be unwashed. A man can be ugly and still somehow feel he is his essential self. And Sartre was scruffy and Sartre was unwashed and Sartre was ugly. And she loved him, but also she recognized that for him, his scruffiness, his smelliness, his ugliness was a kind of sexual weapon that it could never be for a woman, could never be for de Beauvoir, who was always elegant. There's also the question, and this question has become more acute since they died and the publication of their letters. Since the 1980s, readers have wondered, knowing more about their life, some of the difficulties they face, Sartre's selfishness, his neediness, the fact that de Beauvoir at various points didn't seem to be a free partner in an open relationship, but an enabler of certain kinds of familiar sexual behaviour of the cold libertine kind whether she failed to live up to the version of freedom and being a free woman that she described in The Second Sex. And I think it is almost certainly the case that she did fail to live up to it and that her relationship with Sartre had an unhappiness to it, which is closer to her description of the trap than it is to her description of being free from the trap. But of that, all one can say is that de Beauvoir shows in her own life that it's hard. And who would think it wasn't hard? These habits of mind, these ways of structuring societies, the hold, the grip that the trap has on people through culture and myth and religion and law and education is pervasive. It's not easy. Why would it be easy? Why would it be any easier for de Beauvoir than anyone else? 
There are bits of the second sex where she asks questions that are familiar for people who write about female emancipation and female oppression, but she gives slightly surprising answers, answers that seem to give too much credence, intellectually at least, to a male perspective. So one of the questions that she asks is the familiar one, why have there been so few great women artists? And she gives the feminist answer, the correct answer. It's got nothing to do with nature or aptitude or ability or biology. It's all about social construction. It's all about the fact that men have the opportunities and women don't. Men have the economic benefits needed to lead the life of an artist, and very, very few women have. Men are advantaged. Women are disadvantaged. If the playing field were level, if the advantages were the same, of course there would be as many great women artists as male artists. But she also says, and this is the surprising bit, that the puzzle for her, to which that is the answer, is why women have not written books that are as great as the books that men have written. Why is there no female equivalent of War and Peace? Why is there no female equivalent of Ulysses or Moby Dick or Kafka's The Trial, or even God Help Us, she says, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia's Seven Pillars of Wisdom, a work of male bombastic nonsense. And yet she still seems to hold up the ideal of the male novel, the male writer, the male thinker, as capable of aspiring to the universal. And she says the answer is that women have never been taught or encouraged or allowed to aspire to universal levels of thought. For women, writing is always particular, It is always situated in the circumstance, whereas for men it's possible to think about the whole, to think about themselves and their experiences as emblematic of something transcendent in the round. So she says, women write books like Middlemarch and men write books like War and Peace, and she implies that what we need is a world where women can write books like War and Peace. Well, she says explicitly that War and Peace is the better novel. She says, a woman could write Wuthering Heights, but only a man could write The Brothers Karamazov. And we might think in response to that, are these the better novels? I'm not saying that Middlemarch is a better novel than War and Peace, but I am saying that War and Peace is not a better novel than Middlemarch. And one thing that jars in The Second Sex is some of the politics, because there is also in De Beauvoir a very clear political agenda It only appears at odd moments, and it is buried for the most part in the amazing, brilliant, original, unprecedented dissection of culture and history and social mores and psychological twists and turns and sex, sex, everywhere sex. But the politics that appears at various points is her socialism, and not just her socialism. She and Sartre embraced causes which, with hindsight, are not the ones probably that we would embrace today. They flirted with Stalinism. They went a long way down the path to becoming Maoists later on. And in the second sex, at various points, de Beauvoir implies that the only way out of the trap is a socialist revolution, that there needs to be an abolition, an abolition of many of the rules and laws and institutions that constrain women, that establish bourgeois conditions of marriage, bourgeois conditions of motherhood, that structure women according to the hierarchies of capitalist society, and that a model for how this could be done is the Soviet Union, Stalin Soviet Union, in which she says the constitution makes clear that women are to be free. The constitution of the Soviet Union abolishes many of the constraints that tie women to marriage, 
that tie them to motherhood. It allows equality of education and opportunity in the workforce. It legalizes abortion. It treats women's bodies as their own. She treats the Stalinist constitution of the Soviet Union as though it were a model for female emancipation. And then she acknowledges, because this is 1949 and the Second World War has been and gone, that those rights enshrined in the constitution were just paper rights and they vanished on the wind as soon as the state demanded something else. And when it became clear during the Second World War that what the state needed more than anything else was simply more reproduction, because the state was chewing through male lives at a terrifying rate, sacrificing millions upon millions of young men, it suddenly became the job of women to revert back to their traditional roles, and all those rights were abolished. Abortion was outlawed. Women were meant to breed. They became breeding machines for the state. De Beauvoir acknowledges that, but she never quite says, therefore, the rights in the Constitution are not the model for a future form of female emancipation. She doesn't really say it at all. And yet I think we can say of Stalinism that if female emancipation depends upon the authority of a state like that, it's not going to emancipate anyone. We're back in the older, more familiar forms of oppression. But the second sex does not end with socialism, though the final paragraph in it is a quote from Karl Marx. And though one of the people that de Beauvoir identifies as a shining example of female emancipation is Rosa Luxemburg, it ends by going back to where it started with the comparisons with other kinds of oppression and the question of progress absent the socialist revolution, absent the pure constitution that abolishes all of the oppression. De Beauvoir recognises that most progress is going to be piecemeal and not absolute, and it's not going to come in one big bang. And the progress is real. The progress in France is real. The progress towards enfranchisement and emancipation is real. Economic changes matter. Women need opportunities in the workplace. Women need educational equality. Women need fairness. Women need rights. Women need the ability to get out of bad marriages. Women need the ability not to have to enter into bad marriages. Women need control over their own bodies. Progress matters and progress is hard. And she asked the question, why is progress so hard? Yes, men and women are trapped in many nightmarish relationships, but still progress seems to be hard all the time. And part of her answer is that it is comparable to these other kinds of oppression and that there are barriers in the way of progress put there by the oppressors, by the men, that can be compared to the barriers that put in the way of progress, put in the way of change, put in the way of emancipation by other kinds of oppressors. So there are two barriers in particular that she identifies. One is a kind of nostalgia. Men, mainly men, but not only men, some women too, will say, we need to be careful what we give up here. Emancipating women might get rid of things that we value, femininity and a kind of refinement and elegance. There is nothing more charming than the charming woman, men will say, and one or two women will say too. And de Beauvoir says this reminds her of the arguments that are sometimes made about slavery in the American South, where people are nostalgic for the old plantation way of life, the elegance of it, the charm of it, the gone with the wind nostalgia, the smell of magnolia, the smell of magnolia 
which ignores the stench of blood. And in making that comparison, she makes it clear what she thinks of that kind of nostalgia. You be nostalgic for the plantations of the American South if you want to. It's grotesque. And she also says something else which connects her to many of the writers I've talked about in this set of talks. Another barrier that's sometimes put in the way of progress towards female emancipation comes from men saying the same kind of thing that colonizers say to the colonized and that slave owners say to their slaves and that capitalist bosses say to their workers and men say to women. They say, you don't want what we have. Part of the reason that we're not giving you this power and this right to decide your own lives is that it's hard. It's not easy being us, the men say, the colonial administrators say. They say to the colonized, we'll do the hard stuff. We're sparing you this. We're allowing you to lead lives that are simpler, less cluttered by anxiety. We're the ones who can't sleep at night. The factory boss who says, I'm the one who has to worry about going bankrupt. All you have to do is show up in the morning, take your wages, go home at night, drink, eat, and be merry. And men say to women, don't you trouble your little heads about this. We'll do the difficult stuff. This is painful, hard work. It's no fun being a man, the men say. It's no fun worrying about how to run an empire, the imperialists say. It's no fun being a slave owner, the slave owners say. It's hard work. And what does the slave say? What does the colonized person say? What does the woman say? They say, if you don't want to do it, let us do it. If it's so hard, we will be more than happy to take that burden from you. We will be more than happy to risk not being able to sleep at night if you will let us decide. If you really don't like it, give it up. But you won't give it up because you do like it, because you're lying. And that argument the one that says you could only justify this from where you stand, you could never justify it from where we stand, is for de Beauvoir what connects all of these different kinds of oppression with each other. And the man is like the colonial administrator. The man is like the slave owner in that he tries to justify what he does by saying it's hard. And if it were so hard, he would give it up, but he doesn't. And so for de Beauvoir, ultimately, the freedom that she thinks we should all aspire to is the freedom to know just how hard it is, to know what it's like to have real choices, to know what it's like to exercise power. If it's so hard, she says, let us do it. To find out more about de Beauvoir and her influence on modern ideas, please visit our website at talkingpoliticspodcast.com and look for the History of Ideas page or look for the show notes that come with this episode of the podcast. Next week, David discusses A Theory of Justice by John Rawls, a book that sparked a generation of argument about what makes for a fair society. <laughs>